Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. And use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, time for another edition of Holden Court, everyone. As uh, my next guest is uh, one of my old mates uh, in many ways and uh, now working with us at ESPN as well. Uh, played Davis Cup. In fact, the first time he ever played Davis Cup, I was the captain, so that was a pretty big treat for me to have him on. Uh, but I wanted to just dive deep with Mr. James Blake about how he got started in tennis, all the things that you've done in, in, in your career, James, and then what you've done, maybe even more importantly, post-career and what you're planning on doing. So welcome to Holding Court, and thank you for joining me, young man. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure and an honor. I do remember that that first time being on your team. It was, uh, oh man, such a pleasure. You did, you did such great work bringing that team together. There wasn't a lot I had to do. Just roll out the balls and let, <laughs> let you you and Andy Roddick and uh, Marty Fish over the years, and then the Bryan brothers joined, and uh, it, w- it was a lot of fun. But what do you remember about I, – I mean, I remember, obviously, that it was post it – was, it was right after uh, 9-11 when we had that match with India. We, meaning the United States, I was the captain, and uh, yeah. we were supposed to play that match – I think it was a weekend nine right after nine eleven actually happened, so it ended up yeah. getting postponed uh, a couple of months. And then take me back to your memories of playing for your country for the first time. Wow, I, I mean, I had so many memories. Well, first, I mean, first and foremost, there was the you know the tragedy that happened on nine eleven, and I don't think I was in the plans to possibly be on the team at all for for that time. And then when it was delayed a few months. Um, that's when I had some pretty good results, um, post us open, uh, over in Asia. And then when we got there to Winston Salem, um, if I remember right, it was possibly me or possibly Todd Martin. were going right. to be playing for mm-hmm. the U S and, um, at that time, I think it's, you know, they, they, they often say ignorance is bliss. And I, I love that. Uh, <laughs> I love being ignorant sometimes of the fact that I didn't realize the pressure that was on that week. Because I wasn't really that confident that I had any chance of playing. So I was just out there having a great time, playing as much as I, you know, playing as well as I could. And then we played, I played matches with Todd or a match with Todd. And, and I think I beat him, uh, straight steps. And then you were knocking on my door that night saying, we want you to play. And I was, couldn't have been more excited and thrilled. And I mean, I guess in the back of my mind, I had that, the outside possibility, but I just, I, I don't know. I just thought Todd was such a veteran. Um, and that he was going to be the, I, I was still learning. I was still getting to that level on tour. I was still kind of, um, getting to the point of one day being a Davis cup teammate. And then when you knocked on my door, I, you know, closed the door and then couldn't take a smile off my face for the rest of the night. And, you know, then, then the reality set in that, okay, now I need to, I need to be ready to win too. I mean, I'm, I'm playing for my country. I want to win and I, I want to do everything I can to, to play as well as possible. So I was, I was prepared. And then as much as I prepared that first set, I remember with Leander Pays, mm-hmm. 
just the emotion in the stands. You gave a beautiful speech um, beforehand uh, talking about the importance uh, um, of team and, and of, of um, you know, representing your country. And then going out there, it was really the, the most nervous I've ever been for a tennis match because I don't feel like I get nerves very often uh, when it's U.S. Open, Wimbledon, no matter what it is, because you're out there as an individual. Um, but I remember just the emotion in the crowd and then me playing Leander Pays, who was a pretty crafty veteran, which uh, I, he was a crafty veteran then in, 2000, uh, in 2001. <laughs> right, right. And he's still, he's still playing now. Which he's is almost amazing, 50. But... He's still out there playing doubles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was something where I was like, okay, I, you know, I know I can win this match, but I was, I was definitely nervous. And the, that feeling in the air uh, in, the, in the stadium and the crowd going crazy every time we win a point. And then when they say banded USA and game USA, it took until about five four in that first set um, when I started almost feeling normal, and I just got I kind of eventually was able to put that out of my mind and focus strictly on trying to beat Leander. I'm putting the rest of it out of my mind, and and um, finally coming through and winning that match, and and seeing Andy take care of business as well. It was just it was so calming. Then after that after that first day, to know that we had done everything we needed to do and we we got the wins, and then. We didn't have the Bryans quite yet. We had uh, right. we had Johnson and Johnson and um, Jared Palmer. Jared Palmer, right? Don yeah. Johnson, Don Johnson, and Jared Palmer. So um, we had, you know, we had a great team. We had those guys as veterans. Um, but Andy and I, it just felt then after that, we felt like there was to me that felt like there was a pretty great connection. That's why I'm, I'm definitely have to. I know you don't want to take a lot of credit, but you took you do deserve the credit for for putting me in and getting me ready and getting me prepared as I needed to be for that match. And then getting me and Andy um, to feel like a real team that went through, I mean, we went through ups and downs with sure. that team from 2001 all the way through winning it in 2007. And, um, and it was just a great camaraderie. It was a great feeling um, between teammates. And then when we added the Bryans, it was, it was truly complete. And um, we just felt like a team. And that goes to, to you doing a great job of, of making us feel that way. And you, you even said that then, I think that you were committing to, to us. We were the young guys. We were, you know, at the time, sort of uh, hoping for the, the future of American tennis, American men's tennis at that time. And you were, you were, you were letting us know that you had the confidence in us um, to lead this team, even though we were, you know, probably young, foolish punks kind of. And we were, uh, we were definitely changing a little bit of the, a little bit of the changing of the guard. But um, you, you, you showed us your confidence in our abilities. All right, don't make this about me, James. This is about you. You see, this is always you, the classy, the dignified James Blake. He's always turning back around. Come on, you're so you're full of it. It wasn't about me. But I'll tell you, the, the irony of that whole week to me was was Todd Martin because he was a guy who obviously was a great player for, for Davis Cup, did whatever, you know, singles, doubles. And and I know you looked up to him, as did yeah. I in my own way. I mean, he was younger than me. He was sort of the, you know, yeah. the elder statesman. And I know you had a lot of respect. He was almost like a mentor figure to you and it was it was tough yeah it was nice for me to deliver the news to you but it wasn't that nice you know to deliver it to Todd um that he wasn't going to play but of course he handled it like a true pro and and I think in a lot of ways the way he handled it sent a message to you guys yeah Todd I mean yeah I could definitely do a whole nother 20 minutes 30 minutes on on how great Todd was that week and how how great he was for for a lot of my career he was the guy I called I still remember when I, I lost the kind of a heartbreaking match and a Memphis qualities match. I'm sitting on the, the steps of that, uh, that Midtown athletic club and calling Todd Martin, just kind of 
wondering what I was doing wrong. Do I have a, a future? Do I, you know, do I really have the ability? And Todd was, I mean, Todd was gracious with his time. He was gracious with all the, the wisdom he had. And, and he, he definitely, he definitely handled that situation well because it could have been, like you said, he was someone I looked up to and I beat him in practice. And then, um, and then I get to play and he could have very easily, you know, shown that, Hey, I've got the experience. I've been here before. I've done all this. I've done so much in my career. I've been to Grand Slam finals. I'm, I'm the, the better choice. And, um, you know, he didn't do that. He just said, okay, you know, that's, you know, he, he was at practice the next day. He was as gracious as could be. So he was, he showed me the kind of by example, the way right. to handle things, the way to handle disappointment. And, you know, he was, he was there for me and other times in my career for disappointment and, and showing me what, uh, how to handle it. So I mean, a true credit to, to Todd because, you know, I was on the other side of that too. I remember in, um, in the Czech Republic when Marty played That's right. instead of me. Yeah. I remember you telling me, you giving me, and, um, giving me that news. And that was a, that was a Slo- Slovak Republic, by the way. Yeah. Czechoslovakia went to Czech Republic. Yeah. Slovak and Sorry, Martin, was, Martin, oh, it's okay. Uh, Marty came Marty through. Marty played unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, came through huge, and and that was where you know I, I definitely drew on, and I think you even mentioned when you were telling me about it that you did this with Todd as well, and um and I thought about that, and I thought a little bit about the way Todd would have handled it, and I, I tried to do my best as well. I tried to be the best cheerleader I could be for that weekend, and um and Marty, I do remember. I don't know if you remember when the lights went out, and uh, and Marty was down. I think he was down a break point. And the the lights went out. We had to go back in the locker room and wait. And then right. Brian, uh, my my coach Brian Barker, and I still talk about Marty's confidence with, um, you know, when he decided to come back. And it was, it was like, okay, where are we going to go? You know, you might as well now you've got time to think about where you're going to go. And he goes, nope, that's where I think I'm going to go. I'm going out wide. I'm <laughs> right, and just right. I mean, had full confidence yeah. and ended up winning that huge match, coming through it. And Andy had just come off winning the uh, the U.S. Open and ends up losing a, a match to uh, I believe her, her body. Right. Uh, but those guys came through and it was, um, you know, it was, it's tough to, to have disappointments, but as a tennis player, I mean, I don't know if fortunate or unfortunate, you get prepared for disappointments. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, the only, <laughs> I won 10 titles in my career and I played for 14 years. So that means there's a lot of weeks out there that you don't end up holding up a trophy. So you got to figure out a way to, to move on and try to improve. And, you know, when, when I got the confidence that you put me on the team in Winston-Salem, it absolutely launched my confidence for the rest of that year into the next year and playing really well in 2002. And when I had the disappointment, um, I believe that was in 2003, I still actually felt like I improved a ton um, in terms of then I went, we, we had the, the European swing. I was, uh, as I said, Brian Barker is my coach. And we thought about ways that we needed to improve because that one was on clay you know, what do we need to do to improve my clay court game? What do we need to do to, to get better? And it was just, okay, we're going to take this and we're going to try to use this um, as motivation to get better. Because at that, you know, that week, there's nothing you can do except be a cheerleader and be happy for your teammates. And, and Marty's one of my best friends. Marty and Andy are two of my best friends right. on tour. I'm still close with, with both of them. So I, I'm not going to be out there being, you know, kind of pouting and, and saying, I, you know, I don't want anything good to happen. I absolutely always want something good to happen uh, for them and for the U.S. team. So, that was never an issue. It was just how I was going to use it personally to mm-hmm. get better. And it, it ended up, I felt like I was getting better improving into 2004 and then, you know, I got hurt. So that was, there was nothing uh, I could have done about that, but um, I definitely felt like it, it set me on a path to, to kind of reassess and, and improve from there. 
Well, you had a lot of times where you had to reassess, but I want to go back, as you mentioned, yeah. your, your coach, Brian Barker, who you met when you, yeah. your family made the move up to Connecticut. So, I, you know, I try in these podcasts, yeah. James, with you, you ex-great players to kind of dive a little bit into how, how you got started. Obviously, I know, I know your story. Your older brother played as well, was a great college yeah. player. Your parents got you into it when you were young growing up here, you know, close to where I live now in Westchester and Yonkers, where you grew up before you moved to Connecticut. So tell, tell, the, tell the listeners a little bit about how, why tennis and how you got started in tennis at a young age. Well, both my parents played, and I still would always joke with them um, that the reason I got started in tennis is because they were too cheap to pay for a babysitter. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's only partly true, but I feel like they would just bring us. My parents loved playing tennis with each other, and they would bring me and my brother to the courts, um, and we'd kind of roam around on the the other public courts or in the the stands at the armory there in Harlem where Mm -hmm. they would play sometimes, and we'd we'd find ways to entertain ourselves, but we'd also be kind of watching them, and then – Maybe they were done. They tossed us a few balls, and that's kind of how we started liking tennis, and we saw them, and so we wanted to kind of be like them. And my brother, three years older than me, liked to play, so then I started liking to play and wanted to be like him. And then it just became our sort of family activity. You know, on the weekends, what do we do together was we would go up to the to local high school and, and play some tennis with each other. And um, and then as I got older and really started enjoying it, as any kid, you know, athletic kid, you want to play a lot of sports. So I played baseball. I played a little basketball. I was, wasn't particularly good at basketball since I was tiny, but I was, I, I, I liked playing baseball, but around 12 ish or 13, my dad kind of had a little talk with, um, with, with, uh, my brother and I, um, separately, at, at, uh, around that age saying, you know, I would really love for you guys to pick one, one thing that you want to mm-hmm. actually put a lot of focus and attention into. And he, he, he didn't put any pressure on us uh, to make it tennis, even though that's what he loved. He, you know, he said, I don't care if it's, you know, piano, saxophone, art, mm-hmm. uh, baseball, basketball. He, he did say no football. And my dad was a little ahead of the curve with, with <laughs> right, saying there's right. no way you guys will ever play football. But, um, but it, it, we both came to our own conclusion that we wanted to play tennis. And um, around then, around 11 or 12 was when I met Brian. Um, we just, I mean, for me, it was the luckiest situation in the world is that we went to this, the local tennis club and, um, I guess someone saw maybe there was a little talent and they said, they suggested we go to this club and said, Hey, I think this guy would be pretty good. Um, and you know, that was for me, that was uh, one of the most fortuitous, uh, meetings ever because Brian was my coach from then 11 or 12 years old until I was almost 30. Um, I was which, which is like unheard of. Yeah, which is un- yeah. <laughs> which is unheard of for for a professional player who got you know as high as you did to number four in the world to have a coach from the time they're you know basically starting out eleven or twelve. And uh, I love the story you wrote in your book Breaking Back, which came out years ago, which is a great read um, about when you f- with sort of first couple times you're on the court with Brian because the head guy I guess was a little bit older gentleman and he wasn't quite crazy about <laughs> dealing with all you know hot tempered a uh, couple kids. So he passed you and your brother over to Brian you took a couple lessons together and then you finally got on the court with him solo and and you were you know getting pissed off because you missed I can't believe you actually missed a forehand because I've never seen that but that you were missing some forehands and he kind of called you over and and it, it, it sounded like once he was interested in James Blake the person rather than the tennis player and the shots that's sort of where that connection started am I right on that yeah I kind of I kind of left out that um that that somewhat unflattering portrayal of me at the beginning because I was a, a, 
a guy by the name of Ed Pagano. He owned the club. He still owns the club. Um, and he was the first one because he was sort of the, the one in charge. And he took my brother and I for a few lessons. And then I, I was definitely a hothead at that age. I was a perfectionist. I was um, you know, very frustrating, I'm sure, for any coach. So he turned me over to Brian, who was much younger, much more energetic, had the time, and he hoped the patience. And after seeing me and watching me go crazy on the court because I missed a couple of forehands, um, he just looked over and said, gee, thanks, Ed. Really appreciate you giving me this kid. <laughs> right. And then, and then uh, like you said, he became invested in me as a person. He still jokes that, you know, he, he couldn't believe it because I was going crazy and it was annoying for him. He didn't want to be out there until he saw me, you know, get so excited to, to give him his Christmas present or to, uh, to give someone else something else. And that he said, I, you know what, I, I see something. I see that this kid has a lot of redeeming qualities. I, I, he says, and I, I like to, I like to think he was right that I had, aside from being a little crazy about the tennis and about the competition, I, I off the court and, um, and in, inside my actual, my actual heart was good. And so he saw that and he, um, he became invested and then he put so much time. He still does. I mean, he's still a coach for juniors and he still puts so much time and effort into each one of his, his kids that he really cares about, that he wants to, he ends up talking to the parents. He talked, he spent many hours talking to my parents about um, what they needed to do to be good tennis parents and what was best for me and, and really taking the pressure off me. And so I know I talk about in my book that there were a lot of, a lot of um, lessons that we, we joked were mm. five minutes of hitting and 55 minutes of talking. We'd sit on the bench <laughs> and end up just talking about, about life and about me growing up and about me maturing and, uh, you know, he was so, he was so great about that. Cause I think a lot of coaches don't look at it that way. A lot of coaches look at every one of their players as just, you know, hopefully they'll make it and they'll be the meal ticket or, you know, just going through the motions just to get it, you know, to get, um, uh, to the next lesson or to the end of the day. And he, he never had that in him. He was, he, he actually cared about each one of his, his students. And then when it became obvious that I was, um, excelling at the college level and then into the pros. Um, I know it was tough, a tough decision for him. And, uh, he, he decided to step away from all the other students and just travel full time with me. And I don't think that was very natural for him because he's used to having a lot of, um, a lot of kids that he was working with. And I'm very thankful that he made that decision and, and traveled with me. And I, I definitely know I wouldn't have had anywhere near the career. Um, I did if I didn't have him to handle the ups and downs with me. Listen, I got to come clean now, James, because, um, you know, I had to, I had to go behind your back a lot to, to co- talk to coach Brian, like, Brian, how am I going to get through to this guy? How am I going to get him to you know, not try to hit every ball, mock 10? What can I say? Like, oh, you need to say, don't, don't say this. Don't tell him that. Don't so I was like, are you sure? Okay. All right. But anyway, he, he, he was a sounding board for me. Um, in for for many years when you played Davis Cup, as far as it, you know, to try to try to get the best out of you, because that's the, really the only job of the captain is to let the player, you know, be in a be in the space where they can do their best. I also have to ask yeah. you, I mean, your mom's still around. Betty is a yeah. English woman, a great lady, yeah. but I, 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 you know, your dad passed away at a relatively young age, you know, and I know it was a mm-hmm. shock to you. He was such a healthy guy took such good care of himself he died of cancer it turned out but I, I I always had such a respect for him I didn't know him that well but he had a presence about him you know he had a, yeah. a, a, a you know and what I think of you and your dignity and the way you've handled you know the Black Lives Matter and you know being an African-American you're a lot of people look to you as we do in tennis as sort of a spokesman for that fairly or unfairly but your dad to me a lot of that emanates from the kind of person that he was 
because he had that sort of like he was he was strong, he was tough, but he had a lot of grace and and a lot of dignity about him. So you, you just just tell me a little bit about you know him and you know I remember going to the funeral up in Connecticut was it was uh, you know just a terrible day for for you for yeah. for those of us that cared about you and your family but what he what he still means to you to this day oh man um uh, it's, this could take a while but I, <laughs> I, I he means so much to me and uh first off thank you for being there that day I was I was absolutely overwhelmed by the support I got and my family got um on that day I don't think I really publicized when the um, when the ceremony was going, when the funeral was going to be, and uh, seeing you, seeing Todd Martin, seeing my agent come back, cut his um, vacation short, seeing so many people from the tennis world being there meant uh, meant the world to me that they cared about him and they cared about me. And uh, what he always had was he was tough. He was um, he was a disciplinarian in our house, and there was no um, there was really no negotiating. If he said no. You, you maybe asked once, and then once he, he made his decision, you knew that was it, and there was no getting through to him. And, and then you could ask why, and he would give you the mm-hmm. reasoning behind it, but, but there was no budging. He had reasons for why he did things, and he was just really, really tough uh, on both my brother and I. And even you know when we were growing up, we didn't understand, hey, why, why do we have the earliest curfew? Why do we have to be in before all our friends? Why can't we go out and, and do the things that our friends can do? And he explained much later, he said, well, and this is well, well before any sort of Black Lives Matter, any mm-hmm. of the police brutality videos you see now. Right. And he explained to us, he said, hey, if you guys are out at a party, or you guys are out at a park, and something happens, we're living in Fairfield, Connecticut now, which is 95% white, probably. He said, if you're, you know, I had the crazy dreadlocks, you know, Thomas, my brother's much taller, he's six foot five. He said, if they're coming into a party and they see a six foot five black kid, you're the first one they're going to. You guys are the ones that are going to get in trouble. So I'm doing what I can to protect. He, you mm-hmm. know, said, he explained this later. We, we were just upset because we want to be with our friends. We want to be just like all the other kids and have the same curfew. And he was very protective of us. There was, he was very anti-gun in general, but there was no, you hear what happened to Samir Rice, who was, you know, 11 year old that was shot um, for holding a toy gun. And we weren't allowed to even hold toy guns. Mm. And, you know, we didn't understand why. And he had seen so much of this. I mean, he went through being married to a, to a white woman. Uh, back in the 70s. Um, so there was plenty of prejudice, plenty of discrimination that he faced, plenty of times him being pulled over, plenty of times where he was uh, profiled. And so for him, he used that experience to, to shape us. And there was no, there was no wavering. It wasn't, but you know, all our friends are doing this and all our friends can do this and that. And it was not that way. This is, this is the way that we do it in our household. And this is the way it's going to be. And he was very, uh, I mean, you know, I know you you don't think of me as very stubborn at all or anything, but my dad, <laughs> no, no, not at all. But I, def- right. I definitely got that from my dad, who, yep. who had his uh, had his philosophies, and we trusted them. And I mean, I also then was so supremely impressed by him that he was he was the tough dad. Um, and then when we got to college, we could come home and you could chat with him like you were like he was a friend. Mm. He felt like he had done his job in raising us and getting us to that level. And then when we were out in college and then later on our own, okay, we were on our own. We're happy. We, you know, we could go to him for advice, but he's now just that advisor. He's not dad who's laying down the law, who's making these rules, who's doing everything like that. He changed. And I think that's that to me now as a parent, I see how difficult that is because mm-hmm. of course he wanted to give us everything we wanted. You know, of course he'd want us to be happy and do it, but he was very tough and strict until he did his job and he felt like that was done. And so seeing that, it, it made me so inspired. Um, and when we lost him so young, I, 
I really just couldn't believe it because he had become mm. such a great friend after being such a great dad. And, you know, I think those are sometimes two different roles. Sometimes they get blurred and, you know, you're a parent, I'm a parent. You, you, you realize that as much as you think your parents have everything together when they're raising you, you realize now as a parent that you don't, you're kind of, do, you're winging it as you go along. You're making these decisions with your, with your partner and figuring out what's the best way. And you're always just trying to do your best. And, um, the way he did it, I was, I was really impressed with the way he was as a dad and then as a friend and advisor. So I was, um, I was lucky to have him for 24 years in my life. I know how that's what the way I had to, to frame it in my, you know, cause there's nothing we can do about it, but I have to think about how few people have someone that's that, um, that great of a mentor, that great of a role model for any amount of time in their life. So I feel just fortunate that I had him for the 24 years I had him, um, uh, in my corner. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun, you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. This episode of Holding Court is being brought to you by True. That's T-R-U, the lifestyle beverage. Absolutely amazing. Go to drinktrue.com to learn more. I suggest you try out the True Sampler, 30% off with the code PATRICK. A lot of parallels I can think of as you tell that story about your dad. And one of them is you were both the, the father of daughters. You have two. I have three. Mine are a little bit older. Yeah. So I'm dealing yeah. with one who's a teenager now. So we got the teenager. So I was talking to my therapist recently. Yes, I have a therapist. <laughs> Try to be a better person and a better dad and a better a husband. Yeah, a better husband. Yeah. And um, she said to me when I was talking about my own daughter, uh, and her issues, you know, trying to be independent and becoming a teenager, all that. Said you, you, you've been the you, for many years. You've been the decider. Now you have the choice to be. Do you want to be the confidant? In other words, it's sort of like what you're saying about your dad. Like you, when you're young, when they're young, you make the decisions for them, or you tell them how it's going to be. Then you, there comes a point in time where it's okay. You 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 can't decide for them anymore. Now you make the choice. Do you want to be someone that they can trust and that they can listen to as they get older? Yeah. Obviously, you were older coming back, and I think your dad and your parents did okay. You know, both the boys went to Harvard, so that wasn't too bad. You both <laughs> guys got into Harvard, but but here's what I, here's here's one thing I I can't understand i can be in your shoes in many ways as a tennis player now as a father and so on what i can't understand is being a black man okay and then right. i want to ask you about that not you know i i've heard you talk and obviously you got accosted but you know you got taken down by a cop people know that story but what, what i want to hear about from you is what was it like as a junior tennis player 
being an African American young boy who was obviously really you know good really good young player and and the things that you had to deal with along the way yeah there was um there were plenty of things that happened here and there, and I tried to um not pay as much attention to them um I think as you get older um it becomes more and more apparent that you have a voice and you can do things especially what happened to me after my career um even some of the high profile things that happened to me uh, during my career incident with Leighton Hewitt mm-hmm. um at the U.S. Then, Open right yeah at the U.S. Open yeah. yeah um but then before that you know when you're just starting out in juniors it's tough because you don't really see it as much um because I didn't that wasn't on my mind I didn't think about it I, mm-hmm. I grew up in Connecticut it's 95 percent white I went to play tennis a lot of times on the weekends in Harlem that was 98% minority. And so I felt comfortable in both worlds. Mm -hmm. And then I still remember, um, I remember getting into junior tennis in New England. It was in the 12 and under, you know, um, when you usually start. And I entered my first tournament, first New England tournament. And they said there was a lottery to get in and you didn't get in. Okay. You yeah. know, there's too many kids. It can only take 30, 32 kids or whatever. Right. And you didn't get in. Okay. But then they say, okay, but just, this means if you didn't get in this one, you're guaranteed to get into the next one you enter. Mm-hmm. Great. I enter the next one. They say you didn't get in. And now my mom, who is, you know, my mom is being <laughs> much more mild, right. mild mannered. Uh, right. But when, when you, when you attack her, her, uh, her kids and yeah. the little mama bear comes out right. and she, um, got on the phone and did not relent and said, absolutely not. James is guaranteed. I have this letter that you guys sent that mm-hmm. said he absolutely has to get in. They said, oh, the draws are even made. We can't do this. And she did not let up. So I got into that event. And it turns out that it was run by the same person that was running the first one that mm. didn't let me in. And okay. he was not happy, but we got there. And it turns out the first match I'm playing is against the top seed. And I mean, on tour, we see that they do this randomized draw sheets and it's just by a computer and it's completely luck of the draw but i'm sure for a 12 and under event you know they can <laughs> get it back and they're, rig yeah it. They're, they're not picking it out of the hat no exactly so i'm not i'm not a conspiracy theorist but i'm playing the top seed first round and i end up winning and i don't because again ignorance is lit i don't know who this kid is i i've never played any of these new england players before i'm just going out playing tennis Happen to play as kid, I think, wow this kid's pretty good and i'm you know having we're having a great match i win it i think four and third or something Win the match. Okay, next round, play someone else, play someone else. Before you know it, I'm in the final right. against, I think, the second seed. And this um, person that had um, had run the event, you know, the trophies are out in the, in the front desk or whatever, and we're, uh, we're playing this match, and it's apparent now I'm going towards victory. I'm going to win this tournament. Mm-hmm. And I come back up, and the, the owner of the club is the one who was running this event. Um, he, he was there at the beginning. And I think I lost the first set and win the second set. And I think I'm winning easily in the third. Right. And I come up and my mom is furious. So she's happy that I won, but she's furious. He had left. As soon as I start winning, he left. Didn't want to be mm. there to give me a trophy. And it turns out later he's, you know, he ended up having some like discrimination suits against uh, him. And he's not, you know, just overall, we know that it, it became obvious the reason why. And I'm at 10, 11 years old or however old I was, I wasn't thinking about these kind of things. I didn't know this. I was, hey, I was, hey, your mom, your mom, your mom knew what was going on, but you, you weren't, you weren't aware. Yeah. And she didn't, she protected me from knowing these things. Mm -hmm. And she was just so happy. I I won the trophy and you know that, and it was great. And I was, I was excited about that. And then as you get older, you start realizing, wait a minute, I didn't even think about that because my mom was so great about not 
sort of burdening me with that. Right. And I remember then just a couple of years later, she said that one of the, one of the kids in junior tennis, her dad was sort of talking to her and you know, I think he was trying to be nice, but he was, you know, the, his sentiment was not the best where he said, you know, it's so sad about James because he, he looks like he's really good, but you know, he's, uh, he, he's not, he doesn't fit into any one category. He can be hated by by everyone. He, or he's probably, or he's going to be hated by, you know, by both sides, by black and white. My dad's black, mom's white. And she, without, without flinching, just said, I, I look at it the other way. He can be loved by everybody. He can mm. be loved by all. And that's the way I always kind of try to think about it. And, you know, it's maybe naive at 11, 12, however old I was then, 13, 14 years old to think that and to believe that. Um, but it is, I do think it's a good guiding factor to try to, to think that way. Um, even if reality slaps you in the face sometimes when you, when you hear, you know, kids in high school using the N-word and uh, saying that stuff around you and then saying, oh, but not you, you're one of the good ones or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and how sort of de- degrading that is to say, like, you're one of the good ones. So the rest of the rest of the race isn't. But since you know me, I'm OK. And, um, and just hearing those kind of things and, and um, the, the racial terms that are used, because like I said, my, my, my high school is very, very white. And um, there was probably a, a click of, I don't know, 10 to 15 black kids. And it was almost expected that those are the ones that are going to hang out together. And for me, I was friends with all of them. And this is where I felt, I tried to feel like I was, um, it actually made me feel good to try to feel like I was connecting because I was friends with all of them, but mm-hmm. I was an athlete. So I'm friends with all the tennis team. I'm friends with a lot of guys on the basketball team. I'm friends with a lot of guys on the baseball team. And I always felt like, there's so many circles. I would kind of look around and I'm like, okay, this circle, like they were kind of connected because I was here and I connected mm. these two groups. And I, I felt like this is a good thing that I have. And even in high school, I felt like that was something that I was, I tried to be good at. And I felt like was, I think uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote, uh, I'm not sure. It was one of his early books about like the interconnectors, how, um, how they work and how they, how they bring a lot of groups together. And I always tried to feel well before I ever read anything by Malcolm Gladwell. I think in my own mind, I thought about those connections and it, it makes it possible because, you know, when you hear that degrading term about you're one of the good ones mm. and it, so much of that made me think even in, at the high school age, I thought, you know what, all it is is that you know me and that you know. And so if you can put enough people in front of enough people and show them that these groups are, this is a good person, this is a good person in this group. And, you know, even in the, the small setting of high school that there's, there's every click. There's the the cool kids. There's the nerds. There's the uh, the science ones. There's the band kids. And if you can, and they have these stereotypes about each one of them, and none of those are helpful. Those aren't going to make anyone better, and no one fits squarely into a box. So if you can introduce the fact that I'm in an AP class, I've got a lot of friends that are very smart that are going on to Ivy League schools, but I'm also friends with the entire football team that are looking to get athletic scholarships to other schools, and they have these ideas about each other, but if I can kind of be in both worlds and introduce them to other people in those other worlds, it made the, the feeling like I was, I was proud in any of those, you know, whether it be a party or any sort of a setting where there are groups that were together and they got along. And you realize that once you, once you make those connections, it's so much easier to get along with them and feel like hopefully some of those stereotypes can fade away. Yeah, no, I mean, I, mean, that, I think that's a great way to, to look at it. And, and that definitely has been the kind of person you've been since I've known you, sort of a connector, connecting different people. And 
you know, you get along with, with pretty much everyone. So obviously your, your tennis career, people know about, you know, top four, you got the four in the world, you know, the great, the great match with Andre at the open, which you, by the way, the, the people, the matches people remember about me, I lost all of them. And at least you had some that you won. Okay. But I know that's always the, the first one people say about James, like yeah, that, that epic match. He lost to Andre in a seven, six and, you know, in, in a breaker. Of course you beat Nadal yeah. one year at the, at the open and getting to the final yeah. of, the, of the, of the ATP championships was great. I was there for that when you, when you made the final there, but then, yeah. you know, what, what, what of those, experiences what matches do you look back and say you know that's the one I'm most proud of or that run I had in you know 2004 2005 what what do you when you look back at your great career what matches stand out because for me it's obviously some I mean I, I didn't have nearly as many wins as you but for me some of the matches that stand out for me are some of the losses because I felt like well, that was about as yeah. good as I could play when I lost to Becker yeah. in the quarters of the U.S. Open what about for you yeah, I mean, I, like you said, I, people remember the Agassi match probably the best. And I did feel like I played really well then. Um, you know, I had chances. I could have won it. And Andre's such a great champion. So I feel I, I'm, I'm, I, th- I think I'm comfortable finally saying um, uh, that I'm okay with that, that loss. And I did, I did everything I could. And I'm, I'm comfortable with that. But I'd say probably my two biggest ones are, are partly because of the, the situation. And partly because of the the competitor. One is the the being Roger in the Olympics because mm-hmm. getting to do that in the Olympics. And for me at the time, I felt like Roger. You know, we'll see how history bears out, but um, it was the greatest of all time. And so playing him, and I'd lost to him so many times that getting to beat him in the Olympics was truly a thrill. But the other one really was with you on the sideline there, beating Michael Eugenie. Um because, like I said, we talked about Davis Cup earlier, and how much it meant to me uh, to be part of that team and all the ups and downs we went through. And then to finish it off by winning in Portland against Russia, we'd lost them the year before and then all doing it as a team, Andy winning his first match and me winning. And then the Bryans closing it out. It felt like we did it as a team. And I mean, so much of our, um, uh, of our history as Davis cup, uh, we had Andy as our rock. He was our anchor. He was our Marion Rivera. Every time we needed him to clinch, he clinched on Sunday um, and he was just, I mean, he was our leader, uh, even though he's younger than me, he was the one that had more success on tour and more experience. So he was our, our absolute, um, great champion. And then, but to feel like, okay, this one, the finals, we've been through a lot. We've been through ups and downs. Uh, we all did this together and yeah. it was a hard fought match. Um, yeah, seven, you know, five in the fifth. I think it was yeah, seven, five uh, in the fifth, wasn't four. it? So six, four in the it fifth. Was, I think it was four, it was four sets. Seven, okay. six, but it was uh, uh, it was three of them were tiebreakers. I won oh, okay. two tiebreakers and lost one. Um, but it was, I mean, a brutal, hard fought match. You remember Michael Eugenie, obviously being such oh, a grinder, such so, a great, such a great competitor. competitor. Yeah, doesn't give you anything for free. So that one, I felt like I earned, and to to feel like I was contributing to that team victory, it makes the the Davis Cup trophy that I have. I mean, I don't save a ton of my trophies, but it makes saving that Davis Cup trophy that much more special. I really feel like I was a uh, I was a part of that team. I just want you to know, James, I'm finally going to gonna tell you the truth about that match. I was thinking to myself, because it was driving me crazy that you kept missing the return because Usney didn't have a big serve, but the court was very fast, so the things were happening yeah. pretty quick. 
So I said, I, I was thinking about all those conversations I had with Coach Brian and, you know, knowing your personality as I did. I said, well, I can't tell James that he needs to take like two or three steps back, which, of course, is what I wanted to tell you. But I said, no, he won't like that. So what if I say, James, maybe if you – I think he's going to go out wide on the deuce court that first point. I said, maybe you could just like sneak out there a step or two, thinking that like, yeah. like you would stand back. And sure enough, you did it. And you hit one of your Mach 10 forehands down, the, and you actually missed it by about an inch. But I, I suddenly yeah. looked over at me like, yeah, that, made, that felt good. Like, that was good. And I was like, maybe he's going to actually do it. And then you did. You actually took like a step or two back, and you made a little adjustment. I was like, oh, man, that got you the break. So I was like, you know, that oh, took a, there was a lot of conversations that led up to the, you know, because I couldn't say, if I said the wrong thing to you, that could backfire, you know. So I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Now you're understanding how difficult Brian Barker's <laughs> job was because, he, and and I understand that I, I started, I've helped a few young players, Chris Eubank, Diapo, they've come out and worked me a little, and I would call Brian after every single day and be like, man, th- how come you never told me coaching is so hard? Because <laughs> right. you want to say so many things, like you said, you wanted to say all these things, but you're afraid it's going to mess me up. And I would be, you know, watching Chris Eubanks and watching Francis on it, and like, I want to say something, but I could mess them up, so I got to hold back. And Brian was so good at like holding back and then saying something. So then like when you said that, mm-hmm. I took it to heart because I knew you had learned, you had, you had gotten to the point where you were in the same boat where you would say something if you really, really felt it, if you felt it was important. And I feel like I would always, I think that's some of the tough thing about being a coach is you can say something if they take it to heart right away and it turns out being either counterproductive or wrong or it's not helping them and it can really mess them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So you have to be so yeah. careful. So I was so, uh, so when you say something and I, and I believe it, I take it to heart and I really try to do it and I try to enact what you're saying. And so Brian, I think was, that's why I would always say, like, how come you're being so cautious? He's like, well, cause I know if I say something, <laughs> right. I better be really, really sure that it's the right thing to say. So a lot of coaching was holding back. Yes. And, um, I know me and you had, um, sort of a different dynamic on the bench and say so you and Andy, cause Andy was so different that mm-hmm. he wanted to have a full conversation about every point. Oh, yeah, you could, done yeah, you could talk about everything. Yeah, the Brian brothers were totally <laughs> different in their own way. So that's uh, that's the so, that's the fun of it. So and, it's difficult. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's difficult, and I and I respect that um, because some coaches are probably only one way. One is my way or the highway. Right. And um, to be a Davis Cup captain, I think it's it's um, it's pretty unique because you have to coach different personalities all in the same weekend. And so a lot of it is um, is adapting. And um, you know, Brian, it makes me very much more respectful of what you did what Brian did and, and how hard it is to really get the most out of your player. Yeah. Well, it's a, it was, it's good when you have a lot to work with. So as I said, uh, having you guys was, was, because I always like, these guys got way more game than I ever had. So just sometimes best to shut up. All right. You've given me way more time than we agreed to, because this has been fascinating, but I do, I do have to end by asking you about the, the incident that, you know, obviously uh, that happened in 2015 when the, when the New York police officer tackled you, mistook you Mm -hmm. for another a uh, uh, person that was, I guess, under suspicion at the hotel you were staying at. So you were, you know, fairly, fairly off the tour, you know, in New York to do some appearances. Now you've got a, you know, burgeoning TV career, which we're happy, very happy to have you with us in ESPN moving forward as well. But, uh, you know, I've heard you talk about, you talked about it on air with us during the U.S. Open with the Black Lives Matter was going on, obviously, a lot in this past summer. But, you know, Hearing your stories of when you're a kid is 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 amazing because you know the, 
realize that you had to go through that stuff. I've talked to other African-American kids, you know, players that I played with too, that I didn't even think about it, you know, that they were going through this stuff. But now that you've sort of come to this stage in your life, you know, give me, give me, give me a way that this kind of makes sense to you or doesn't, or, you know, where are you at now with this and with what happened to you in 2015 after describing to me what happened to you as an 11 year old kid? Yeah. So it's, um, it goes in waves at times. And I, I think I, I wrote an op-ed about when, what happened to George Floyd, because, you know, when it happened to me, it was 2015 and I spoke up about it and mm-hmm. I did everything I could. I, um, instead of suing a city in New York, which I felt like would do nothing, uh, but line my, uh, line my pockets, uh, which doesn't help anyone but me. Um, I felt I, I, we made a fellowship that helped other people in these situations. Um, there's, there's a fellow on staff now for the city of New York that, um, that is able to aid, um, because the lawyers are completely overworked. Um, they don't have time to, to put any real effort into a lot of these cases. And that's sad to think that there's that many of these cases that they're overwhelming the, the system. But, um, so I did what I could to try to help. But I also, the other part of that was I really wanted to speak about accountability. And this officer had had four other incidents similar to this. Um, that were on record. I mean, I don't know how mm. many more it might have been that, mm-hmm. that weren't on record. And, right. um, so I felt like this was a, a case that could set the precedent. This was on video. Uh, there's no way to victim shame. This wasn't out, you know, at a bar at three in the morning. I didn't have drugs on me. I didn't have weapons on me. There was no, there's no um, criminal record. There's no way to say, oh, we shouldn't have been doing this. You see on the video, I'm standing there looking at my phone. I'm not um, in any way suspicious or doing anything. I'm waiting for a car to take me to the U.S. Open. Um, at noon, uh, in the middle of the financial <laughs> district in, uh, in New York City. So, um, I'm not, uh, so I thought, okay, this is a, a case where we can clearly get some accountability and say this officer was in the wrong. They shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't still have a badge, most likely, but, or at least they should be very harshly punished to retrain to figure out a way so that this never happens again. Because you look at the cases where cops have killed, uh, suspects almost almost to um, almost every single one of them has had cases of police brutality mm-hmm. or excessive force. And it is built up to that. So look, let's stop that in its tracks. Let's stop this officer from having that happen. And I, it, fought, it took all, over two years for me to get any sort of justice for him. And all it was was he lost five vacation days. And that to me was extremely frustrating. So I spoke about that, that, that the system is broken. There's something mm-hmm. wrong with the system. And that's all when anyone on any, in any job, if they were that, egregiously wrong in what they did, they would be fired. They would be, um, I mean, you'd be sued, you know, if you're malpractice, if you're a doctor or something, if you're doing something wrong, you're, you're going to get serious punishment. This is a slap on the wrist for multiple encounters with this because their union is so strong. And so I talked about that and I'm screaming about it. It seems like I'm sort of screaming into the ether. And then um, Colin Kaepernick is protesting for this and he gets a ton of attention and that attention is being driven away from what he's fighting for to the way he does it. And people are saying that's disrespectful, it's unpatriotic, he should be out of the league, he then is out of the league. And then still, similarly, he's doing a lot of things in the grassroots uh, situation where he's helping a lot of um, institutions to, to fight this, but nothing is being done on a national level. And then the George Floyd incident happened. Mm-hmm. And it makes it so that it becomes aware. And I was distraught when that happened. I didn't sleep that entire night. That's when I wrote the top ad that I think went in USA Today. And um, it was just so disheartening to me that this is still going on. It's 2020 and that's going on. And I was really, really disheartened and saddened 
for the family, but then also the fact that, in my opinion, this is another case where it's going to be gone in a day. It's mm-hmm. going to be um, Terrence Crutcher. It's going to be Ahmad Arbery. It's going to be um, Alton Sterling. It's going to be Philando Castile. It's going to be all these people that this has happened to, and then it's forgotten after two news cycles. And then to see what happened, and I wonder, I just, I don't know, I can't explain for sure why, but my, you know, guess is it's during the pandemic, everyone's at home. So everyone is watching this video. Right. That video is so graphic that you actually watch a policeman murder someone on TV. You're watching the life being taken out of him while he's crying for his mom. You realize that it's over a counterfeit $20 bill. And this is the system. And the, the sort of ease and lackadaisical attitude of all the police officers around there it, it, it's just sickening to see. And so I think that's what galvanized mm. not just the black community, because the black community has been screaming about this for years. It galvanized the majority. And then you see protests. I saw one just in Solana Beach, which is where I live now in San Diego. And it was probably 60% white people. And you see some of the, the uh, protests in LA and same thing. It's completely mixed. And now the majority is speaking out. And I spoke to a lot of high schools, a lot of colleges, and it's a lot it was a lot of white people asking me, what can I do to make a difference? Mm-hmm. Why? And um, like you said, it, it can be eye-opening. Even So my incident, I felt like, opened my friend's eyes. Yep. You know, the, the, the Marty Fishes, the, Andy, the, the people that, in my circle that, similarly, like you said, you knew a lot of uh, African-American juniors and you didn't think about what they were going right. through. But it opened, it opened your eyes and it opened their eyes when something happened to me. And then the George Floyd case, I think, opened America's eyes to the fact that this is still going on as much as we try to deny this or say that we don't know these people or the cops are, are doing the right thing. Yeah, a lot of them are, but a lot of them aren't. And um, so I think this, the, this one felt so different when you have the majority supporting you. And um, that's why I think George Floyd was such a, such a turning point and it opened a, the entire country's eyes to what's been going on and what can happen and, and the fear that so many people go through every single day. I mean, my wife, my wife's white and we'll be driving. And if she's driving and a cop is behind us, there's no nerves in her at all. Mm. And for me, I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm nervous. And she's, we've talked about it. It's like, are you really nervous? I'm like, absolutely. I'm nervous. And we've done nothing wrong. We've got all, you know, right. we got the insurance, we've got the registration, but I'm just nervous because I don't know what can happen. I, I know what can happen and I don't know what's going to happen. And um, it's not really right um, to have that still be the case. And my wife and I talk about it with the fact that, you know, it's, it's not really fair for that to, to be going on at this stage um, of my life to still be scared about that. Mm-hmm. And then you think about same thing. We talk about it with her, with women, like for a woman to go, she likes to go running and to go running either too early in the morning or late at night. She's scared because she's afraid of being physically overpowered. And there's, you know, there's people that have these fears and um, it shouldn't happen that way. They, they should feel comfortable with the police being there to protect us. Um, and it's unfortunate that we're in the situation, but I'm hoping that there's going to be more, more change and more positive, um, positive impact done. And I'm more, more and more encouraged since then. And I now realize that I'm completely rambling. And you, like you said, we've been, we've probably gone way over time. <laughs> no, no, listen, but. no, no, don't apologize at all. You know what <laughs> you, 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 you know, cause we're, a lot of times when we're on TV, we don't have as much time to talk. And, uh, That's true. and That's I think, true. you know, the other thing that resonated with me and you just reminded me of it was you, you talked about it during the U S open that sometimes you yourself, you go out for a run and you're, you know, it's cold yeah. in the morning. You, you're, you're thinking about, should I put my, my, my sweatshirt on with the hoodie? Cause yeah. if, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So, I mean that like, to me, I was yeah. like, wow, like I, you know, it, yeah. that, so you just keep doing what you're doing, James. And you know, cause you're making Thank an you. impact. And, uh, 
um, you continue to do that. And we'll look forward to uh, catching up during uh, the tennis season. And I appreciate yeah. you coming on Holding Court. <laughs> Thank you, PMAC. Always a pleasure. You got it. That's James Blake, everybody. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Mudhouse Media.